Our Heavenly Father, as we take time this morning to look at your word, we're grateful for Matthew, for him leaving us this record of what you did here on the earth, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Father, we just pray that we would see you this morning, that we would gain greater faith in your ability, not just to heal us physically, but to heal us spiritually, to meet us at our deepest need. May these words be yours and not mine. We ask your Holy Spirit to speak to every heart and mind here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're picking up, and, and honestly, it's very difficult in Matthew or in any gospel, really, because the story flow, it's one continuous story. And, and so it's difficult to figure out where to, to kind of break these passages up sometimes because what's happening is you have to remember they've... So Jesus is gone. He's called Matthew last week. They're at this party at Matthew's house. At Matthew's house, where they're having this party at, then, this first, then a group of people comes up and says... Um, and, 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 it, and it's the Pharisees at that point, and the Pharisees come up, and, and they're like, hey, you know, why are you eating with these sinners? And so he addresses that. That was what we talked about last week. But now he has, um, he's still at that same party, uh, at least the way I read this, it seems like he's still at that same party, and, and, and he is continuing to deal with issues as they come up. And so the very next thing that happens is that another questioning group comes along. Now you have to remember that Matthew doesn't intend to show a chronological storyline. Gunnar talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But the fact is that every one of the gospels, the, the what we call the synoptics, um, have this same story in the same order. So it's pretty obvious that he's still at Matthew's house and, and then that's when this, this action happens. Um, the action first continues with another displeased group. Now, there's two other displeased groups that kind of start this chapter. In verse 3, the scribes come up to him and say, hey, he's blaspheming by saying that the sins are forgiven. And Gunnar dealt with that two weeks ago, that Jesus Christ is a forgiver of sins, is the Messiah. And then last week, the Pharisees were the ones that came up and said, well, okay, well, but he's eating with sinners, and he obviously isn't pure in, his, in, in the way he keeps the law. And so he dealt with that. Well, now a third group comes up, and this might not be as clear because we think of John the Baptist as being this, this great man, and he was. He was the last Old Testament prophet, and yet some of his disciples apparently were questioning what Jesus was doing. And so they, they come up in verse 14, and it says, The disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, they're probably speaking here of the voluntary fast days that, um, that they and the Pharisees observed. And, and to be honest, it does fit the description of John the Baptist. Uh, in Matthew eleven eighteen, it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Um, it, that there was some... John, obviously, they kept to the traditional feast days and fast days, and, and he, he, he did apparently have this sort of lifestyle that this was built into uh, their worship and, and into their practice as, around John the Baptist. Um, the, uh, you know, Gunnar talked about fasting earlier as we were dealing with it in Matthew. It came up in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, I, we're not going to look at that, but you can remember there that Jesus never taught against the practice of fasting. In fact, 
when he comes to deal with it in Matthew chapter 6, 17, he says, but when you fast, showing that the expectation that is that it would happen. So in dealing with this, they've already they've probably already heard that Jesus didn't say don't fast. So what was the problem here? Why were they upset? I think there's probably two different issues going on when they approach Jesus here. Um, there, uh, the, uh, the first issue is that to John's disciples, while John was pointing people to Jesus, all of his disciples apparently didn't necessarily get what he was trying to teach. And... So as as he is is trying to talk about commitment to Jesus Christ, remember, he looked at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His disciples must not have totally caught on to that all of the time. And to them, this lack of fasting indicated a movement which did not take religious commitment seriously. And to them, it was a mark of their religious commitment, just like for the Pharisees, the same way. To them, it was a mark of their religious commitment too fast. Um, and, the, and we also know that by the end of the first century, that is, by the, end, by the time that John the Apostle is writing the book of Revelation, um, you know, the, there was already this group of John's disciples uh, uh, that had formed like their own Jewish sect who basically denied that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, and denied that Jesus was the Messiah. So not all of John's followers were as accepting of Jesus Christ as what John himself was trying to teach people to be. And so we have these men that come up. They're probably part of that group of John's followers. And they say, hey, why don't you fast? Well, now Jesus gives them three illustrations to answer that question. It'd be nice if Jesus could just come out with a straight answer. Um, but unfortunately, it's not unfortunately, he has a very clear purpose in doing this. He answers them with these three illustrations. And he says in verse 15, he says, the, uh, Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, what is the image here? The image is of a bride, a, a, a party, a, a wedding feast. Now, in that day and time, we think of a wedding feast. We have a wedding, and like, I don't know about you, but when I got married, I wanted to have the wedding, and let's go. We ran down to the gym. You have the reception, and then you leave because you don't want to stay there with all your friends. Let them go do whatever they're going to do. I don't care. I'm gone. I'm married. I'm done. You know, it's time for the rest of the, the honeymoon. Well, Jesus, at that time, he's drawing on this picture of what would happen at a Jewish wedding. They would have feasts that would go on for days. And so they would maybe spend a week just partying with their friends and their family. And, and the bridegroom would be, all the bridal party would be there. And so in the, his mind is this time of joy and celebration. And if it's a wedding feast... You don't go in there and expect to see empty plates in front of you and the bride, bridegroom, the groom gets up and says, guess what? Thank you for coming to this feast. Um, we decided that it would be fun to fast for this feast. 
Try doing that the next time you have a party. Maybe at your dinner eights, just tell people you're going to practice the spiritual discipline of fasting and just tell them that instead of bringing food, we're just going to look at the plates and we're going to spend time in prayer and, and focusing on God. I would go over extremely well and you will be invited to every dinner eights group from then on. Um, no, when you're at a party like this, when the groom and the bride are right there, that is not the time when people are going to give up food and fasting and, thing, and, and, and for that. And it's interesting that he uses this analogy because later on, as Paul, con- as Paul continues and writes the New Testament and Peter, the church is always spoken of as being the bride of Christ. It's one of the main illustrations that use, is used for the church. And if the church is the bride of Christ... That makes Jesus Christ the groom. And so I, in Jesus' mind, he has that in his mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, it's not the only place, but it's one of the places. It says, For I am jealous for you with a, godless, a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He, Paul is speaking to the church there. He's saying that my goal is to present you just as a, a, a parent would present a, a, a daughter to a husband at that time um, as a, a, a in purity. And so he's saying the church is being presented to Christ as the bride of Christ. And so in, as Jesus is discussing this, he's using himself as the, as the illustration of the bridegroom. And he's saying when the groom is here, that's not the time for fasting. There will be time when the groom is gone. When the focus on festivity is removed, then it will be time for more somber disciplines. And, and the fact is that we see that happen. After Jesus is gone, his disciples do fast. In Acts chapter 13, verse 3 is just one illustration of that. Acts 13, 3 says, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There's, there's tons of examples of the apostles fasting but not when Jesus was with them because that's the time for joy and celebration. And when we go to heaven and we're with Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation doesn't describe us as coming to a fast of the Lamb. We're described as coming to the wedding supper of the Lamb where we're joined with Him for all of eternity. And so Jesus is, is pointing out to these, men, to these people, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's come. I'm here you're missing that fact, and it should be a joyful time of celebration, the fact that the Messiah has come. The interesting thing other about this passage here, this, this particular verse, is it says, the attendants will mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, but the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. This is the first case in the New Testament where we're given a hint that Jesus is not going to stay. Now remember, everybody at that time is looking for a Messiah who will not come and die on a cross. That's the furthest thing from their mind. They're looking for a Messiah who will come and become the king and literally lead them into a new era where they overcome Rome and ultimately they become the center of the world and, and an earthly kingdom. That's not what Jesus has in mind at all. And this is the first image we get where Jesus is kind of hinting at the fact that, hey, I'm not always going to be with you. I am going to go away. And so, and the interesting thing here is that this word, when it says the bridegroom is taken away from them, is actually kind of a, it's speaking of a, almost a violent removal. Um, and and it, just taken away isn't, isn't 
it's not that he went away, it's that he was taken away. Almost speaking of the fact that his death, that his death will be violent, and, and, and when he goes away, it will not be, um, it will be because he willingly gave up his life, but because it was violently taken from him. So this is the first hint we see of Jesus' removal from earth. So that's his first illustration there, the bridegroom. But now he goes into two illustrations that, quite honestly, at first reading, have zero to do with what he's talking about. Now, that one makes sense when they ask him, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, because the bridegroom is with you. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. The second two don't make as much sense. In verse 16, it says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, what is he talking about here? You have two illustrations. The new patch on the old garment is literally the word for unfold cloth. Now, does anybody here know what unfold cloth is? Neither did I. Good. I don't feel like I'm a complete idiot because I read that word and went, I have no idea what unfold cloth is. So apparently, we still do this today. I didn't even know this. Um, apparently, when you make brand new cloth and you've weaved it and everything else out of cotton or whatever, that cloth, because it's never, it, it's just been, it's just been woven out of plain thread that's never gotten wet or anything else. When you do that, that cloth, has it will shrink a lot if you don't do a process to it called fulling. And apparently, all the way up until like the 1900s, early 1900s, we had people in the U.S., and this is where you'll see last names, called fullers. The fuller's job was to take unshrunk cloth and literally put it through a process of chemicalization, and, and they had these, these like hand machines, they'd pull it through, so that basically what they would do was when they got done with that piece of cloth, it could have been, depending on what it was made out of and stuff, that cloth could have been like a third smaller than what it started off as. Then they would sell the cloth. Because if it didn't have that final fulling process, you couldn't use that cloth to patch anything. You could make a new garment, but even then all your stitches, as soon as you washed it, even by hand, it would immediately pull all of those stitches in. So they had to go through this fulling process. And the and we still do it today. It's just we use big machines and it doesn't touch human hands. It's just all part of the process that we do in the machining process. Um, so that's what, the, that's what he's talking about there, that you can't take unshrunk, unfold cloth and put it on a brand new garment. You have to have the fullers do their job to it in order so that it'll fit on there. So we'll talk about what it actually means in a second. Now, what is he talking about with leather wineskins? Now... The wine skin, you've probably seen, you know, now we, we don't really put wine in a skin, but you've probably seen it. Maybe they made them look old or whatever. And, and it would be a leather bag, and it would hold the wine in it. And, and, it would, and what they would do is the wine would actually ferment not completely like in a barrel, like most of the time we would do now. The wine would begin the fermentation process in a, in a container, a wooden container, a barrel, or something like that. But then the final process of fermentation was to put it into a wineskin, and it would continue to ferment in that wineskin until it was, it was good to drink, and at that point they could sell the wineskin with the wine. But what would happen is if you use the used wineskin, if you've ever had a piece of leather, and you get that leather wet, whether it's on the inside or on the outside, that leather gets very hard. 
And if you let that water go away from that leather, it will get very dry and very brittle. So if you've used up all the wine out of a wineskin, that wine, and it, it kept that leather kind of supple as long as it was in there. But as soon as that wine is gone, it's dry, it's brittle, it's useless. And so they can't put new wine into it because it's so brittle, the, the liquid will not get into the pores on that leather anymore, and it'll just crack it and break it. So you have to put it into a brand new wine skin so that as it ferments, if you think about a fermentation process, it's creating gas bubbles and everything else in there. It's going to expand that leather. If it can't expand and it cracks and breaks, you've just ruined all your wine. So the, the, the process was you put it in brand new wine skins because it will destroy the old ones if it's not put in there, if, if you put it, try to put it in there. Now, what is he saying here? Kind of the same illustration. You're putting a new old, old pe- a new piece of cloth on an old garment. It's ruining it. You're putting new wine in old wineskins. You're just ruining your wine. You're wasting your time. What is he saying? Together, both of these illustrations, I believe what he's doing is he's continuing to explain that there's a difference that Jesus has been continually pointing out between the religious community that he is establishing and the old religious establishment represented by those here confronting him about fasting. He's constantly been at odds with the religious community that says, your faith is about what you do on the outward side. So that your faith is about how much you fast, how well you pray, how much you give in public so people can see you. And Jesus is coming along and saying, no, it's about what's inside. It's about how your heart is before God and your relationship with him And this is him continuing to say, you're still not getting it. What I'm establishing here is something completely different. And the same things that you are doing now to show or demonstrate or try to be in right relationship with God are not the same things that I'm continuing to teach. I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, you cannot put the new message of the gospel into the old container of the law. We're going to come back to this at the end in uh, in a few minutes. But in the meantime, Matthew moves into relating four more stories of deliverance as Jesus responds to faith in those who come from it. This is kind of a, this is where I say it's hard to kind of draw the line. Because really, maybe that part of it could have gone with last week's sermon. Where where he's still sitting at the table. Well, now another piece to the story kind of happens. I don't want to. I don't want you to forget what just happened here. But the story is now going to kind of change directions. So, as he's sitting there at the table, in verse eighteen, it says, "While he was saying these things, so he's still at the party. He's talking to these people who have come in and questioned him about this. While he was saying these things, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, "My daughter has just died.'" But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but when the crowd had been sent out, he entered, took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and the news spread throughout all the land. 
I want to deal with these two together, kind of. So he's going to deal with four separate incidents. The first two kind of happen together because he's on the way to the person's house to raise his daughter from the dead when the other one happens. And it's, it's dealing with two women, and there's a lot of similarities to the story, actually. So I want to deal with them separately and then together as a unit. The first illustration, the, the first thing that happens is, obviously this man comes up and says, hey, my daughter's dead. Now, if you read the story in Mark and Luke, she's not dead. She's on her way to being dead, but by the time they get to the house, she is dead. So, so either way, she dies, okay? And Jesus is going to go with him. We'll deal with that story in a minute. But while he's on the way to this house, another, another healing happens. Like everywhere Jesus goes, just people are getting healed everywhere. So you have this woman, and, and, and here we only get it in two verses. When, when you look at other places, it, it's, it's drawn out much longer in Mark and, Mark and in Luke. Um, the first, what's going on in this is that basically what we think is probably happening is this is a woman who has some sort of menstrual disorder, um, and she's had a hemorrhage for 12 years, it says, bleeding for 12 years. And she comes up behind him, and it says she touches the fringe of her cloak. Now, there's two things you need to see, know about this story. The first one is, Gunnar pointed out before, every time he's touching someone who has leprosy, every time he touches someone who's dead, all these different things are very ceremonially anathema. You, you cannot do these things. They make you ceremonially unpure. Well, if a woman has been dealing with that problem for 12 years, that means for 12 years she has been ceremonially impure. In Leviticus chapter 15, um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's a lot of it's dealing with this. Um, in Leviticus 15, it's bas- it, it, she basically, in Leviticus 15, 19, it says, when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body's blood, she, got, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. So it was considered unclean to even have to deal with it, and then she had been dealing with it for a very long time. So for her, this was like life-changing. This wasn't, we think of a, a little bit of blood or something now, or you have medical issues. You, you go to the doctor, you get them dealt with. There was nothing like that. For her, this meant that her life had basically come to an end because she was so on the outskirts, she couldn't go into the temple to worship. She, she couldn't have a normal relationship with her husband if she was married. She couldn't have anything. People would, she would be forced by law to tell people, hey, I, you can't touch me. You can't be around me. And so it put her at the outside edges of society. The second thing it talks about is her touching the hem of his garment. Now, this is also a Jewish thing. This was probably the tassel of the garment that all Jewish men would wear. Um, I have rabbi, some rabbi friends today, and they still have a shawl that goes over and it has tassels at the end of it. And um, for the really orthodox ones, they'll wear it like pretty much all the time. Um, but basically, this was, a, this was, a, this was a, a garment that all Jewish men would wear. In uh, Numbers 15.38, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue and so you have this um you have this uh tassel 
on each corner. And probably what she was trying to do was just touch that tassel so she wouldn't let anybody know she was actually there. So she, you can just kind of picture he's got all this press of people around him. It says that his disciples were with him. He has people following him because they know that he's, he's probably going to go heal and raise up a dead person. If you knew somebody was dead and Jesus is on his way to heal and raise a dead person, do you think you might be in the crowd that's following him? Yeah. And so he's got all these people, and she's like sneaking up through the crowd going, man, all I have to do is just touch that little, and he'll never feel it, and he'll never know, and just touch the edge. So that's what she does. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about her faith in a minute. I want to move on to the second story here, because they go together. Raising the girl. So what, what what's going on with this story? So the father is a synagogue leader. Now, What's interesting about that? Most of the time when we've seen the religious people so far, have they been in Jesus' side? No. (laughs) They have looked at him and said, you're claiming to be God. You are of the devil. You are claiming you're doing all of these things. You're, you're, you know, we don't, you're not really the Messiah. You don't, you don't, you know, they didn't believe him. They were trying to actively persuade people he wasn't the Messiah. And yet here comes a religious leader. Someone who was the, 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 a leader in, one of the, in, the, in the synagogue, there at Capernaum, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my, my daughter has died and I, I know that you're the one. I think you can heal her and raise her if you can come back. Now, like I said, in Mark and Luke, his daughter has actually not died yet. So maybe the word gets to him as he gets there. Maybe he doesn't know this yet. And, and Matthew is, is just writing the story so that... It, it reads what you're going to find out later on. But somehow, we know his daughter is absolutely dead. There's no doubt from the text. Some people have tried to say, well, maybe the daughter was just sleeping. Or not sleeping, but um, in a coma. But Matthew makes it clear right up front, he specifically uses the terminology that she is dead. The second fact we see is that as he gets up to the house here, there's something going on. He says he saw flute players and a crowd in noisy disorder. Now, the way they would do things then, and I personally think this would be really awesome when I die, is if everybody could just pay some mourners to come out. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in, if you watch like a, um, a Cajun, I want to say a Cajun funeral, but that's probably the wrong term. Like in New Orleans, when you see a real New Orleans funeral, they have like the horn, the trumpet, you have the jazz bands out there, and they'll do this big, just a a march down the central streets of New Orleans, down through the French Quarter, and and they'll be like doing that jazzy blues music and everything, and and basically telling people, hey, this guy died, and we're honoring him and and, and doing all that. In my mind, that's our version of that today, and yeah, we don't do it in any other culture other than New Orleans, but it's still pretty cool. And, uh, but that's what they would do. So they would hire these fruit flute players. They would hire these paid mourners to come to the house and make a lot of noise and wail and moan. And, and they were good at their jobs. And so they would, uh, they would come along and you would be pay them to basically mourn your dead. And um, so that was already going on. So she was obviously dead by the time Jesus gets there. Now, Jesus, though here is going to demonstrate, this is a new demonstration. We've seen him heal before. But this is one where Jesus is not just going to heal a sick person. Jesus is going to raise a person 
who has no breath left in them, no life left in them, if you had a monitor to put on their brain, there would be no brain waves left in them, and Jesus is going to raise that person from the dead. If there is the ultimate sign of messianic power, if I came up here today and could raise someone from the dead, I guarantee you, you would start following me and doing whatever you wanted, whatever I probably wanted you to do, because I would have a lot of power. I do not. There's no way. But Jesus did. And he's going to demonstrate the ultimate in messianic power. It's really not the ultimate. Healing of sins is. But for the human standpoint, what else could he do? Um, It's the interesting word choice here that he uses. So Jesus kind of gives, quite honestly, a kind of smart-alecky response back to the people. They're like, they start laughing at him because he's like, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm going to raise this person from the dead. And they're like, she's dead. You can't do anything. I've seen you heal people, but you can't raise her from the dead. And, And Jesus says, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. Now, the word asleep is a pretty common Jewish word for death. So in their minds, you know, he, but the weird part is he's probably not using it in that way. Because if he's saying that she's not dead, she's asleep, he's basically saying, she's not dead, she's dead. Well, that just sounds weird. He's, he's probably, he, he's raising this to the next level. He's looking at this from a spiritual standpoint, throwing this out back out there to them, and, and basically showing that, um, that, the, uh, that it's clear from Matthew's account that she was already dead, and that it shows Jesus' understanding of death not being final. Of there being continued life after death. And in just in one small little comment back to them, he's pointing out that while to you her body may be dead, that there's still life there. And what I'm going to do is restore life to this physical body, but her life didn't end. She's somewhere for all of eternity. So what happens here? He dismisses the crowd... And he was somewhat curt about it. He says, uh, he says, um, um, he said, leave for the girl has not died, but is asleep. That's pretty, he actually was pretty like, hey, get out of here. I don't want to deal with you right now. Just, I need, I need, I need just to be alone with her. This was possibly for secrecy, but I, I don't know. Because as soon as she walks out of that room, secrecy is gone. There, there's no, there's no secrecy when you raise someone from the dead. Um, so, but just like in the first story, the second story has Jesus violating purity laws as well. The first one has a woman with this bleeding issue. The second one is a dead body. If you touch a dead body, there's like this period of, you can't go in the temple. You can't do anything. You have to purify yourself. Um, and so Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Jesus takes her by the hand, a dead body. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't even like touching dead bodies now. Unfortunately, I've been around a few, and I just, it's all right. I, I leave that to professionals. And what happens? The girl gets up. But he's willing to ritually impurify himself to raise this girl. Now, what do both of these stories have in common? Both of them deal with ritual impurity. And I think what they're showing is... Christ's focus not on ritual, but on need. This goes back to verse 13, when he tells the Pharisees that God desires compassion, not sacrifice. 
It's, it's, our religion is not supposed to be ritual. It's supposed to be on seeing needs and having our faith live itself out so that we meet those needs. And if there was anybody who, who recognized that and lived that out for us as an example, it was Jesus Christ. And so when he sees these needs, he doesn't respond the same way as the Pharisees would have, the same way as the religious leaders would have, to where he looks at the needs and says, you know what, I can't, I can't touch you. You're, you're, you're not holy enough for me. I, I, I can't make myself unholy. I have to walk into the synagogue tomorrow. I have to walk into the temple tomorrow. Instead, he looks at these people in need, and he says, I care about you. I love you. And I'm going to do what I can to meet that need. These first, these first two stories, as, as I really believe the rest of them are really all about, also demonstrate faith. Now, the interesting thing about this faith, now Gunnar already pointed out, is, is as Jesus came down off the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount, he healed a centurion, he healed leprosy, he did all of these other things based on the people's faith. And, and in this but and in that story, what did he say about the centurion's faith? He said in Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So on the one hand, in those first stories, you saw him compliment a Gentile who couldn't enter the temple, who was probably hated because he represented the Roman government, and say, you have the greatest faith I've ever seen. On this hand, on this side of things, though, what I found interesting in today's stories is the first story, her faith was honestly really misguided. It's, it, she really has more of a, a magical look at Jesus. Let me touch his garment because that's got his power. That garment had zero to do with her being saved. With zero, it had nothing to do with her having her... Um, having her, uh, her, her healing. Lots of other people were, were, were hemming in all around Jesus. They were brushing him probably. And I guarantee you those people went home and probably got coughs and colds and, 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 and still died and all those other things. And none of them experienced the miraculous power that that woman did when she touched the hem of her garment. Because even though it was misguided and her, her faith was kind of in this magical, oh, let me touch his garment, all she really would have had to do was yell at him from anywhere, get his attention, and say, Jesus, I believe you, heal me. And he could have just thought it, and she would have been healed. But she had this magical faith. It it wasn't perfect faith, but he still met it. He still honored it. And the amazing thing in her story is, in in, in verse 22, it says, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now, Matthew is very careful in how he uses the Greek language. That word well there is not the word for a healing. That word well there is sozo. It means to save. It literally says, Jesus answers her, instead of saying you're healed, he says you are saved in the theological term. Now, does that mean she didn't get physical healing? I don't think so. I think she was physically healed. But more than that, he saw her little bit of faith, and he said your faith has not just physically healed you, Your faith has spiritually healed you. Your sins are forgiven. That's how great God is, how great Jesus is. In the second chance, we see this man coming to Jesus 
and, and I don't want to read too much into it, but at the same time, think about the, the way that the centurion came to Jesus. The centurion came and said, you don't even have to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed, Jesus. In fact, I understand this about you. You don't have time to come under my roof. Just say the word. This man comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, I know you've healed people, a lot of them, but, but I really need you to come and put your hands on my daughter because that's the only way she's going to be healed. Really, Jesus could have healed her just by saying, okay, be healed, go home now, and she's, she's well. So his faith was not nearly as strong as the centurion's. He thought he needed Jesus physically present there in order to save her, but yet what did Jesus do? He didn't look at him and say, listen, did you not just see what happened a few weeks ago? I just healed a girl by just I got this servant by just saying his saying it right there in front of the centurion, and she, and he was healed. Instead, he just looks at him and says, "Okay, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to honor your faith." And he still responded to that faith. Well, then we go on and we see more faith. We see blind men healed. In 27, 28 through 31, it says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on a son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out, and they spread the news about him throughout all the land. Focus on faith is all over this healing. Faith, what we see here is a very definite faith in Christ as the Messiah. He wasn't just a great healer. He wasn't just someone who showed up on the scene and could do great miracles. But they were focusing on this term, the son of David. Now, son of David is only used once in the book of Mark and Luke. Matthew is going to use it six more times after this. What's the point? <laughs> Gunners made this point when we were back there at the very beginning of Matthew. And Matthew does that very detailed genealogy that sometimes can get really boring to those of us who don't worry about that kind of thing. But to the Jewish mind, when you call him the son of David, you've recognized that he's the Messiah. You have said he's the one who we've been looking for that will come from David's line and will be able to save us from our sin and heal our land and restore our people. And so these men come up to them and they call him with this very messianic term, have mercy on us, son of David. Once again, appealing to his Jewish listeners who expect the Messiah to have Davidic roots. Um, they signified that at least at this point, in the healing, they believed that he was Messiah. They also showed faith in the one that they couldn't see. When Jesus touches their eyes, and, and I don't know if it's a huge point, but one of the commentaries made it, and I thought it was interesting. They were believing in someone they had never watched do a single miracle. They were believing in someone that they had heard about, but they had never seen his face. They'd never, they didn't know what he looked like. They didn't know what, what position in society he was just based on his clothing. They, they didn't know any of that. But they knew there was this man named Jesus. And he was doing things that nobody else could do. He met all the requirements of being the Jewish Messiah. And they said, I believe that you are the Messiah. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you look like or even where we're at right now. You can heal me. And they had faith in the one they couldn't see. And then it's interesting that here, as in none of these other healings, faith 
is the focus that Jesus questions them on. Jesus is questioning them to see if they believe that he was the Messiah and could heal them. This is the first time that Jesus is leading someone to voice their faith as a condition of healing. Now, I don't want to get leave the wrong impression here. This is not the same as modern faith healers and preachers that will tell you, oh, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. God wants you to have more faith and you need to build it up and that's the only way you're going to get healed and God will heal you if you only come to him with enough faith. Well, in that case, the Bible says it only takes faith as a grain of mustard seed, that's really tiny, to move a mountain. I don't know about you, but I haven't moved any mountains today. Also, we can look at a man named Paul and I dare say that Paul's faith goes well beyond most you know, he was right up there with the apostles and with these other people. He had healed people. He had, the, the book of Acts says that literally the power, the Holy Spirit was so great in him that literally people would touch clothing he had worn and be healed. And yet Paul in 2 Corinthians twelve seven says, Lord, I've prayed three times for you to take away this thorn in my side. And three times you told me my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take it away. So before you go and take this as theology, as, as, to build your theology from and say that, well, I just don't have enough faith. I need to have more faith and then God's going to heal me. God doesn't necessarily heal you because he's got a bigger purpose behind it at some times. He, and, and, and it's not any of our faith anyway. It's what God puts within us. And so his faith, it, it's, not, it's not what is being taught in a lot of places today that just believe and you'll receive. It's not like that at all. But Jesus at this point was questioning, not, not necessarily how much faith they had, but did they just believe that he was the Messiah and that he had the power to do that? Now it's interesting that once again, we see the same thing we saw a couple weeks ago, that they did not obey his command to not go out and tell people. And you know what? I, I would love to be really hard on them for this, that their first action was going out and disobeying what Jesus told them. But to be honest, if you're blind and everyone knows you're blind, and it sounds like they've been blind for a long time, and you go outside and all of a sudden those people that knew you and you're, you're trying to get around, you, you can't see. And, and, you know, and I know Ray deals with this and he has all sorts of equipment to help him. And, and, I've, and he, they do a wonderful job now. At that time, you don't have computers and big screens that do things for you. They couldn't see anything. And, and all the people who saw them would have known, whoa, a miracle has happened here. Somebody did this. Could you really keep your mouth shut and not tell them that Jesus did that for you? No, you couldn't. I couldn't. There's no way. So all of us, I think, would have disobeyed him. Um, but, what is, but what we do see here. I think it, it, you know, some people try to make more out of this than what it is, but, but I really think all it was, was think about how long this day has been. Matthew kind of makes it seem like all of this is taking place one right after the other. And I don't know about you, but if you've gone from you, you know, you've, 
you've gone to a party in the morning. Maybe that party started at Matthew's house in the morning. You've had to sit there and discuss theological things with two different people who disagree with you. Then you've gone from there to um, to now you've you've healed a lady on your way to somebody else's house to raise a dead person to now you've got these blind people who really need to see. And so you help them and you heal them. You might be going, I, I mean, Jesus was fully human, too. He wasn't just fully God. He's probably sitting there going, wow, this is a long day. It'd be nice to go get some sleep right now without 50 people crowding into the house and wanting me to do something for them. I, I don't want to put like our human emotion, but he was human. And I really think that was mostly what it was, that, hey, he was just trying to get some peace. But they didn't. They went out. And then we come down to the very last one, verse 32 through 34. It says, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. It's interesting that the Pharisees do not deny Jesus' power. But what they question is its source. And this is going to come back. There is another place in Matthew that's going to be dealt with later on, in Matthew 12, 27, where here we don't see Jesus responding to them. But in Matthew 12, 27, Jesus replies back to them and says, If I, by Beelzebul, that's Satan, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. It's interesting when he says this, that Jesus' response back to them in Matthew 12 shows that to some degree, exorcisms were actually common. I, I mean, probably not like you walk out on the street and every five minutes you're seeing somebody cast out demons, but it wasn't unheard of. And at that time, apparently the Pharisees could do it themselves. There were some, their priests and stuff had also had success casting out demons. And, and when we read in the book of Acts, we see other people casting out demons. So it's not that this is strictly something that only the Messiah can do, but the Pharisees are trying to say, hey, we do it by God's power. He's doing it because he's controlled by Satan. And of course, Jesus throws that back in their face and he's like, well, if I'm doing it by Satan's power, then who are you doing it by? Because, and, it, and then he goes on to talk about if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. But that's for Matthew 12. Um, they have to find some reason to stop the crowds from believing in him and following him. The, they've probably looked around and ultimately, ultimately remember what's going to happen. Everyone is going to forsake Jesus. Jesus did not go and have a humongous crowd saying, free him. Instead, they were looking at, at, at Pilate and saying, free Barabbas, free the murderer, send Jesus to the cross. So ultimately, he doesn't have a whole lot of supporters. In fact, his own disciples flee away and run away. Peter denies him three times. But at this point in time, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders are looking around and going, wow, this guy is attracting a lot of attention. He's got huge crowds. What are we going to do about this? And so they have to do everything they can to, to find a reason to stop the crowds from believing in him. Because they're seeing ever-increasing numbers of people believing in his message, not of do these rules and do these regulations and you're not doing them right and you're a sinner and you're horrible. Instead, they have a message of love and forgiveness and the fact that, yes, you are a sinner, but the whole reason I'm here is to forgive you of those sins and not to place a religious burden on your back. So where did we come from today? We started this passage at the same place Matthew has spent a lot of time at, 
the crossroads between the message of Christ and the dead religion of the Jewish religious teachers. The incompatibility of gospel with the law. Then in these four healings, we see what the real message of the gospel is. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. And I would add that it really isn't a new message. The problem was the religious leaders had missed the true message that even was there in the Old Testament. It isn't a new message. It's the same message that the Jewish patriarchs originally understood, that it was faith in the Messiah. And we can now look back and know that that's Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, 39 and 40. In Hebrews 11, after listing all the great people of faith, it says, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith this person, by faith David, by faith these other people. He comes down in Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, and he says, And all these, having gained approval by their works, no, that's not what it says. It says, approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What was he talking about there? What was better for us? Knowledge of the full gospel and the person of our faith that Jesus is the Messiah who paid the final and only sacrifice for our sin on the cross. And just as in the stories that we read today, Jesus is not calling you to perfect faith. He doesn't require great faith. He simply requires faith that recognizes our inability and the only source of our salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and your faith is not in the only one who can give us peace with God, it's Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be perfect. None of us are. He will accept you as you are and see whatever faith you have in Him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you came, that you lived among us, that you showed us that your way is not one of religion, but one of relationship, one of faith in what you did for us on the cross. Father, may we have all of our hope and all of our trust in you. May we not trust in ourselves. May we not be trusting in our in our church, may we not be trusting in a person, Lord, but may we trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ and what you did for us at the cross. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Christ's name.